<laughs> We're back in the book of Revelation today. We, ha- we took a detour yes- last week um, to the, arguably the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. And so we're in the book of Revelation again, and we're looking today at the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia. So if you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word. And have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trials which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, just thank you so much for your word, Lord, again, Lord. We thank you, um, Lord, that you care so much about us, Lord. You've written um, these letters to the different churches, but that they apply to each of us. Lord, to our church in this day. And Lord, they apply to each of our lives as well. And Father, I really do pray, Lord, that your word will go forth this morning. No one else's word, Lord, just your word. Father, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit. You would send your Holy Spirit, Lord, and anoint the words that I say, Lord, my feeble words, Lord, that you would anoint them your Holy Spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So last time I was up here, we were talking about the church in Sardis. You remember, may remember a couple of weeks ago, I think we should have a a quiz um, on the different churches to see if you you can remember, uh, just as a recap. But a couple of weeks ago, it was the church of Sardis, and you may, may remember that they were quite full of themselves in that you know, they had a good reputation, uh, but uh, Jesus was quite clear in his appraisal of them. They were dead. Even though they had a name that they were alive, they were dead. So outwardly, um, they, were, they were doing great, but inwardly, they were, they were absolutely dead. 
And here today we have a contrast with a church that is, has very little strength. Seems to have very little strength on the outward. Uh, they're, they're finding it tough going. And yet uh, God has much and Jesus has much to commend about what, what, what they're doing. So we start off um, <clears throat> with the identification of him who is speaking to them. And in each, in each um, letter to the seven churches, we start off with the identification of the person who is speaking. And in this case, it is he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. And straight away, we know, of course, who, who is speaking. It is, of course, Jesus speaking to the church. And I think it's worth remembering, with each of these seven letters, obviously they're to seven churches, so it's important to understand the context for each of the churches. But it's more important to remember who is speaking to the churches. It is Jesus himself speaking to the churches. The church is nothing without Jesus, which you know, seems like an obvious point to make, but it's, it's, there's no harm in reiterating. The church is nothing without Jesus. It is nothing without Jesus. I had the privilege yesterday of, of uh, attending a, a conference up the road in a lovely, lovely new church, um, church building, and amazing, amazing church building, and lovely, lovely people there. Um, and you're looking at the building and in awe. I, was in, I have to say, I was a bit in awe of, of the church. There was a, a large capacity and uh, great technology. I mean, everything you would want in a church building. But obviously, that in itself isn't sufficient. Even the, the, the people, the number of people. There was a lot of people at, it was at a conference, a lot of people from different churches, all at the conference. Again, great to see so many people filling the church. But again, obviously not sufficient for the church. The church needs Jesus to be alive. And we saw in the church of Sardis that it wasn't. Here, Jesus identifies himself as he who is true, he who is holy. We have to remember that Jesus is holy. He associated himself with sinners. He, he uh, dined with sinners. He associated himself with the prostitute, the good Samaritan, or not the good Samaritan, the, the Samaritan at the, at, at the well, um, who had been married several times, and, and uh, the man she was married to, uh, she was with now, she wasn't married to. She associated with the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the woman who committed adultery. And he said, go and sin no more. He showed it with the tax collector. So he associated with many who were uh, outcasts from society and in many ways were in, in, in sin. Um, and he was not afraid to associate them with them despite the ridicule that he would get from uh, the crowd, so to speak. But he was still holy. He was still holy. And he was still true. He didn't um, change his character when he was associating them. He was holy and he was true 
to who he, who he was. So he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. Now this is a, that's a bit of a strange one. He who has the key of David, what does that mean? It's, it, it's, it's only found one other place, as far as I know, in, in the Bible, and that's in Isaiah chapter 22, the reference to the key of David. What does, it, what does the key of David mean? The first point to bear in mind is that the reference to Jesus in the New Testament, you will often see those sinners coming to him, those in need coming, crying out to Jesus, calling him the son of David. The son of David. Because the son, it was true David's line, we know that the, the Messiah, the deliverer was coming. The deliverer of Israel was coming, the Messiah. And when they called Jesus the son of David, they were essentially um, giving to him the credit of the Messiah who was going to deliver Israel from their oppression. So we, we know that. And it's interesting, I was, I was doing, I'm doing that discipleship material at the moment, and one very interesting fact is that the ancestral um, records of Israel were kept in the temple. So not only was the temple a, you know, a religious function, but it also kept all the ancestral re records of you know, which family you were from, which clan you were from, which tribe you were from, etc., etc. So you could establish your lineage, you're of the tribe of Benjamin, you're the tribe of Judah, etc. In AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, the records, the ancestral records of all of Israel went with it. And the only record that we now have, ancestral record that we now have, is contained in the Gospels. So if you look, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, and the only one who can claim lineage to David now from these records is Jesus. He's the only one who can claim that lineage. So Jesus, he says, he has the key of David. So straight away we're thinking the key of David, we're thinking of, of someone, maybe of the line of David. But there's another element to it, and there's a specific reference in Isaiah 22. Turn me to Isaiah 22. And I have to say, it's an obscure reference. Isaiah 20, chapter 22, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, go proceed to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, what have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here? And he who hews a sepulchre on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. So a sepulchre was essentially a gravestone, but it was a very fancy one, and it had a lot of status associated with it. And this, this man, Shebna, he had built a sepulchre for when he was going to die, 
apparently across the Kidron Valley, if, if, if any of you know Jerusalem, the, Kidron, the other side of the Kidron Valley, there was a lot of these uh, graves of, of um, uh, the Israelites, and I'm presuming a lot of very significant people there. So he had built this sepulcher. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, O mighty man, and will surely seize you and toss you like a ball into a large country. So God was going to bring judgment on this man because he built this big sepulcher and he basically he was getting above himself. He, this was a man who was working. He was part of the Israeli government, if you like, or the Israeli civil service. He was a high-ranking official. Some even called him like a, a prime minister or a minister for finance. And God was going to judge him. He would surely turn... He would surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. And that country was the country of Assyria. So the Assyrians were going to come and um, invade Israel. And they were going to take him away. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I'll commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. So basically, this man Shebna was going to be replaced by someone else, Eliakim. And Eliakim was going to be given the house, the key of the house of David. And he was going to be given all the authority with it. I worked in the civil service for, for a few years, and uh, some very good people in the civil service. But there's also. Um, you know, there's people who, you know, want to use the power um, for their own good. Or there's people in government. We all know about people in government who use the power not for the power for the people, but for their own benefit. And so Shebna was being replaced by Eliakim, who was more trustworthy. And God was giving him uh, the key of the house of David. And with that key came authority, came power, came access to Jerusalem and the treasury in Jerusalem. So it was a very significant and important uh, position. Interestingly enough, the name Eliakim, there's two different versions to what that name actually means. One is, um, he will establish, he will establish, or God will establish, shall I say, God will establish, or God will raise up. Another, another version uh, says it means the resurrection of God. But either way, you get the idea that God was going to raise this man up and put him in a place of authority. He was going to have the key of the house of David. And so we see here Jesus saying, he now has the key of the house of David. What he opens, no one shuts. And what he shuts, no one opens.
And I don't know about you, but in, in my house, keys, um, <laughs> keys are very important. And if anyone knows me, I'm, I'm, I won't be getting the key of the house of David anytime soon because I, uh, I tend to lose keys quite a lot. Uh, but they're so important, aren't they? Because they obviously give you access and they also keep out. Uh, they make, make your house or your building secure. So it's so important to have the key and it is a sign of authority and a sign of power. So here is Jesus speaking to the church of Philadelphia saying, it is me. It is the one who has the key of the house of David, the kingdom. God said he was going to establish the throne of David, the throne of his kingdom through the descendants of David. And that kingdom was going to last forevermore. And that's the kingdom that Jesus has the key to. Jesus has the key to that kingdom. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And in a sense, you could say he's saying, just like he, Jesus said, I am the door. You have to come through me. I'm the door. And it is only through Jesus that we can come in to his kingdom. He says, I know your works. I see, see, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. Have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. So there was, as we've seen before in, in, in some of the other churches, there was a tension here between the true church of God on the one hand and the synagogue of Satan on the other hand. So presumably these were Jews who did not, who rejected uh, Jesus. So they were probably very much part of the establishment. They were part of the establishment. And anyone who's worked in the civil service or anyone who's had dealings with government or with power will know that there is an establishment. There's an establishment. And you, if you want to get on in the world, if you want to do things, you want to make money, you got to be in line with the establishment. Do as the establishment says. And these Jews... They were not real Jews because they didn't really follow God because they had rejected Jesus and they rejected those who'd followed Jesus. Were obviously persecuting the Christians and the Christians had very little strength. But Jesus comes to them with an encouraging word. He says, I have the key of David. It's me. They might let you into their synagogue. They might throw you out of the synagogue. They might punish you. But you are coming into my kingdom, my everlasting kingdom. Because I have the key of the house of David, the key of David. And what I open, no one shuts. And what I shut, no one opens. And he says, I set before you an open door. And he says, I know you have a little strength. I know you have a little strength. And what I, what I love about this passage, and, and it's, it's in, I think it's probably in all the, all the 
epistle, but I just noticed it in this, in this one. The amount of times we, we see the word I, and that I is Jesus. It says, I know your works. I have set before you an open door. I will make those of the Satan of synagogue worship before your feet. I have loved you. I will also keep you from the hour of trial. I am coming quickly. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on him the name of my God. And I will write on him my new name. So Jesus is doing all this. This is a promise of what Jesus is doing. And you may feel, you might feel very much like you're part of the the house of David or the house of God. You might feel you have very little strength. And if we are truly following Jesus, it's easy to get discouraged in this world, isn't it? Because the world seems to be set up against us more and more and more. And it can be discouraging, it can be draining, and we can feel like we have very little strength. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And Jesus works in us when we're not proud. When we're finding it tough, saying, Lord, I'm finding it tough. It doesn't mean, oh, I can do what I want because I'm finding it tough. You know, I'm weak. I can do what I want. That's not, that's not what the, 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 the church in Philadelphia are doing. Jesus says that you've kept my word. You have not denied my name. You've persevered. So they're holding on. The, 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 um, the song there says, I will cling to the old rugged cross. He says, hold fast to what you have. Hold fast. What does that mean? It means not to, not to deny Jesus, not to deny God. It means to hold fast to the cross. It might sound like it's old-fashioned. It might sound like it's uncool. Hold fast to the cross of Jesus. And one day, we will exchange the cross for a crown, as it, as it says here. So God wants to give us strength. We haven't actually got a lot of strength. And I think that is a general feeling throughout the Christian church. We feel like we don't have a lot of strength. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So it is God who gives us strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is God who gives us strength. All he is asking us to do is to hold fast, not to deny him, to keep his word. We cannot keep his word unless we read it first, to keep his word. And there may be things we find in his word, that's really hard. I don't know if we can do that. You can't. You can take the first step and then God will give you the strength.
even young men, even the likes of Namdi and Ritsun, grow tired and weary. Youths stumble and fall. Even young people. Young people need a Lord. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will run and not go weary, walk and not go faint. They will rise up on wings like eagles. Okay? So I do believe God is saying that he wants to give you strength. You mightn't feel very strong. He wants to give you strength. And all he's asking for you to do is to keep his word, not to deny him, and hold fast to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you have kept my command to persevere, and that's what it is, we are persevering, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So there is a, t there is a day coming when the whole earth will be tested. The whole earth will be tested. And it's, a, it's quite a controversial topic. Insofar as, you know, many people say, well, the whole world will be tested, but sure, we'll be taken out before the whole testing, the whole tribulation. And then there's other people who say, no, 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 we'll be there for the whole thing. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> you'll be sorry to hear, I'm not going, I'm not going there today. Um, but what we will say is that Scripture is quite clear. There is going to be a testing. There is going to be a great tribulation in the last days. And it also says that many will come through that tribulation from every tribe, tongue, and nation and will be saved through that tribulation. But there is a tribulation coming. But for the Church of Philadelphia, they were being kept from it. Now, some commentators say they're being kept in that they were in it, but they weren't actually experiencing it, just like the Israelites in the land of Goshen when the, when the plagues came upon um, Egypt. And others say, well, they were actually taken first. They're, they're going to be kept in, in that they didn't have to experience it. And we obviously we know that the, the actual church of Philadelphia to whom it was written, they obviously didn't ex experience a great tribulation because it was written 2,000 years ago. But the important point is, we probably shouldn't be so concerned, oh, w w w will, I, will I face a tribulation or not? Will I face a tribulation or not? If you follow the Lord, you're going to face tribulation. Whether it's the great tribulation or some other tribulation, you're going to tri face tribulation. Okay? And the main thing is that you should be concerned not with facing the tribulation, but with receiving the crown and the reward uh, when Jesus comes back. Behold, I am coming quickly. Behold, I am coming quickly. That's both a, a warning and an encouragement. It's a warning to those who are not walking with Jesus. It's a warning. And Jesus doesn't try and scare us for the sake of, you know, scaring us, 
But some of us need to be scared. He is coming and he's coming quickly. It's an encouragement, obviously, for those of us who are looking forward uh, to the Lord and who are going through difficult times at the moment. So he says, hold fast. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. And he who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. Now, does that excite you? To become a pillar in the temple of God? <laughs> Amen. I, for some people I say, maybe it's not that exciting because when you look at a pillar, it, it doesn't really do much, does it? <laughs> it doesn't really do much. Um, if you turn with me to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter three. Second Chronicles chapter three deals with um, Solomon when he's building the temple, the first temple. It's also found in in First Kings chapter six. Okay, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 13. Now King Solomon sent and brought Huram from Tyre. He was a son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. And he cast two pillars of bronze each one 18 cubits high and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. So King Solomon hired this, this guy from, from Tyre. He was kind of half, half Israelite. Um, there was his, he was, his mother was from Naphtali and his father was from Tyre, which is essentially Lebanon uh, today. So he hired him because he was skilled and he was filled with wisdom, with understanding in all kinds of bronze work. And he asked him essentially uh, to, to build, um, to help him build the temple. And Hiram built the two pillars. And if we go down to verse 20 of, of chapter 6, then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right, called its name Jachin, and he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. The tops of the pillars were in the shapes of lilies, so the works of the pillars were, was finished. So two large bronze pillars were built by this man, Hiram, who was skilled and had wisdom um, and understanding. And they reckon it was about 45 feet. The pillars were about 45 feet high 
and about 15 feet in circumference. So I'm not sure, I'd say that's about 45 feet, five feet up to the top there of the, um, the, uh, the ceiling. So very impressive structures, very, two very impressive uh, pillars and they need a lot of skill uh, to establish them. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the pillars, although they're very strong, they didn't last forever. Construction of the temple in Jerusalem began in 966 BC and was finished seven years later. <clears throat> in order to have the best possible fittings for the temple, Solomon hired a man named Hiram from Tyre to do the bronze work. He was known for his wisdom, understanding, and skill in bronze works. Scripture gives much detail concerning the pillars, Jachin and Boaz. So two pillars, and they both had names. Shechem and Boaz stood at the entrance of the temple. Their dimensions indicate the extent of work involved in creating them, including decorative tops of the pillars. Shechem and Boaz stood approximately 45 feet tall with a circumference of 18 feet. The brass used to make the twin pillars had been taken by King David from King of Zoab, Zobah as part of his spoils of war. The pillar on the south of the entrance which was called Jachin, and one in the north named Boaz. Both Second Chronicles of First King, King says that he set up the pillars and he named them Jachin and Boaz. Commentators are divided as to whether he refers to Hiram or Solomon. It doesn't really matter. The pillars Jachin and Boaz were destroyed along with the rest of the temple by the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, but the names meaning uh, names meaning lives on in the spiritual kingdom of god so what what do their names mean jackin means he will establish boaz signifies in him is strength he will establish in him is his strength so what god is i believe is saying here is that he will establish his temple in his strength, in his strength, he will establish it. There is an establishment at the moment. We know about them and we think there's nothing we can, how can we come up against them? And in the, in the time of the Church of Philadelphia, they were very much up against the establishment and they felt weak. But God says he's going to establish his throne, his kingdom, and his temple. He's going to establish them, and there's going to be a new Jerusalem, and there's going to be a new temple, and that is um, the church of Jesus Christ. And the promise, the promise that the church of Philadelphia has is that they will be made like pillars, pillars of the new temple. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. So God will establish it in his strength, not in your strength, in his strength, but he promises he is going to do it. And that's the promise that he gives uh, to the church of Philadelphia. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. So the new Jerusalem, is the bride of Christ. It's the church. And God wants to establish his church 
and his new Jerusalem through you and through me. And for some of you, that mightn't excite you. That might, I'm not, that's not a big deal. But for those who really see the importance and the significance of what God is doing, he promises to give you the strength. He promises to give you his strength. Not your strength, his strength. All he asks for you to do is to keep his word, not deny his name, hold fast, and persevere. And I know some of you may feel a bit weary at the moment. You know, you're finding it tough. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. Amen? Amen. 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 Father, I thank you that you give us strength.